our passage today is Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. To Adam, God said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. The word of the Lord. All right, good morning. Some people are trying to cure death. I don't know if you've noticed this. Uh, it's, uh, it's called biohacking. So using money and using technology to hack life so that they can theoretically end death. Uh, this is a Time Magazine cover from a few years ago, I think. Uh, it says this, oh, where, oh, it, there it is. This baby can live to be 142 years old, dispatches from the frontiers of longevity. Google's gotten into the game. They got a company, Calico Company, California Life Company. Uh, there's a Russian billionaire that has the 2045 initiative to cure death by the year 2045. Larry Ellison, he's uh, Oracle Money. He's putting 40 million a year uh, towards curing death. He has a quote that says that uh, death makes him angry. Uh, there's one C, uh, chief financial officer of one of these companies that says they think in, in our lifetime that they can uh, work with technology and figure out how to biohack so that everyone on earth can stay between the ages of 20 and 25. I've missed that window, uh, if you wonder. So it's, it's gone. gone. So, uh, so I, I want to share a statistic with you. I did, I did a lot of research, kind of deep dove on this topic a little bit. It's, it's fascinating. They also call it super longevity. And uh, so this is kind of a complicated statistic. So you got to put your thinking caps on. Are you ready? Uh, one out of every one person is going to die. <laughs> so it's complicated math, I know. It's just it's hard to track and follow. Uh, Vladimir Lenin, he was a, a creator, uh, founder of Soviet communism. When he died in 1924, uh, they wanted to like keep his body there and, and people could tour it and see it. And so it's, I think it's still there like 100 years later, but it's a rigorous process. So they have to like, like, like take a, a toothbrush every week to like, you know, get the, the fungus off. They have to like dip him once a month and they put him back. And it, there, here he is right there. You can visit him. He does not look good. Uh, that's because he's dead. <laughs> Just a newsflash. <laughs> when, we, when you heard, when Mike's like, hey, John's going to talk about death today, uh, there's, there's all kinds of things that happen in us as humans. Um, I know I'm a pastor. It's part of the, the deal, walking with people through uh, those times. As a human, as a follower of Jesus, I deal with my own ruminations about death and, uh, and wrestling with death. We, of all uh, people throughout human history, I would argue, especially in the modern West, in 2024, have the ability more than any other people group that have ever lived to keep death at arm's length until we can, until it, it confronts us. Uh, my specialty is like first century Bible stuff, and in the first century, the average lifespan was 30 years of age. The infant mortality weight was 36. That means 36 out of every 100 babies did not make it to age one. Death 
was everywhere. You could not keep it at arm's length. 1,800 years later, the lifespan was only 40 years of age. Infant mortality rate uh, was, was 16%. Uh, 1900, that wasn't really that long ago. The average lifespan was 47 years of age, 1900. Today it's like 77, actually going down, which is depressing, uh, 78, somewhere around there. Infant mortality rate at 0.6%, which is wonderful. That's wonderful. And yet we live in a world that we can just keep it at arm's length and we don't have to talk about it until we do. I'm going to argue today that's not good. Uh, the oldest person that ever lived, lived to be 122 years of age. She smoked to 117. Go figure, right? <laughs> what's, up with, what's up with that? That defies all kind of reason. But I'm here to tell you today, every single one of you are going to die. So thanks for coming. Let's pray. Short sermon day. You guys are like, amen to that. Uh, we're in a series called Realistic Rhythms of Grace. Uh, we're in a season of the church calendar called Lent. And so Lent is a season of 46 days, feast days or Sundays. So it's really kind of 40 days of Lent. And the purpose of Lent, I mean, we've been, we've been celebrating this for a long, long time in the church all over the world, is to prepare our hearts for what the earliest followers of Jesus will call the Feast of the Resurrection. We call it Easter. And so we, the goal of this series is to give those of us who follow Jesus, Jesus is our rabbi, we're forming our life around how he lived his life, practical, realistic rhythms to help prepare our hearts so that when we're here on Easter day, we can really celebrate the resurrection with all tenacity that we could possibly have. So today's rhythm, if you haven't picked up on it already, is to remember death. Let's turn to Genesis 3. That was the passage that Raylene read. If you have your phones, you want to bring out your Bibles. If you have your physical Bible, that's wonderful. Bonus points if you brought your physical Bible. Uh, Genesis 3, 14 through 21 is our passage. I have a Hebrew scholar friend that's working with some other friends, and they're doing a 10-year project through uh, St. Andrews in, in the UK. Uh, and they're, they're trying to follow this theory. They think that embedded in Genesis chapters 1 through 11 is everything that will eventually come in Scripture, which is really fascinating to me. But I will say, you know, let's wait till they get done to see what they discover. But I think we can say safely that embedded in these earlier chapters of Genesis is so much that will be unpacked in the story that we're all a part of. Genesis 1 and 2, complementary creation stories. They're not antagonistic. They're not contradictory. They're complementing each other. They're giving us creation from different perspectives. So God creates this world, and he creates you know, everything that we see, and it's good, it's, it's, it's perfect, it's, it's right, it's tov is the Hebrew word, it's tov, and then he creates you and I, and he breathes life into us, and we're very tov. It's like, Mwah! everything is just a-okay, and then God gives our original parents the gift of freedom, because God is love, and we cannot love without free choice, it's impossible. But part of freedom is that we use that to choose badly, which our parents did. Unless we judge them, we do it every day. And so they decided they wanted to play God. And sin enters the world, and it set off an atom bomb in the garden that then turned into a tsunami of wreckage that we're seeing and experiencing in our own lives till this very day. So when we're dropped in here to Genesis 3, we got to have good context God is in the process of coming down and holding our original parents 
and the evil one who's in the form of a snake accountable for sin. And in a just world, there must be accountability for sin. We want that. You don't want a world that doesn't have that. So verse 19, uh, God is directing this towards Adam. He says, by the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are until dust you will return. It's dark. It's a dark scene. And yet there's a glimmer of hope and brightness in verse 15. Uh, The earliest church fathers called this the proto-evangelium. The first gospel, and it's kind of a complicated verse, so we won't get into it, but look for the hope, look for the promise in this verse, because God comes down, he's holding them accountable, and yet he doesn't leave them alone. He says, I promise I will make all things right. And I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush, this one that's coming that God will send will crush your head and you will strike his heel. God promises at that moment, which is remarkable to me, Remarkable that God comes in and shalom is broken and crushed by free choice. There's a tsunami of wreckage there and yet God in the midst of this says, oh, my heart is broken, I will make this right. I will make this right. I will send one day a snake crusher. So it's the first preaching of the gospel. Then God kills an animal, clothes them because they're ashamed. I mean, there's so much beauty and grace incumbent in this early story. So we see right from the beginning This tension that I think we all feel, and we're gonna unpack this a bit today when we talk about death. And this is the way the writers of scripture present it, that death is an enemy, but death is also our friend. Death is our enemy, but death is also our friend. And these things don't contradict one another, they're in tension. And so first, let's look, I mean, death is our enemy. I think we know this natively and naturally. People that don't follow Jesus feel this way about death. That's why they're trying to hack it. But the scriptures would agree. Uh, Paul tells the church at Rome, for the wages of sin is death. Sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all people. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, Paul tells the church of Corinth. He calls it an enemy. At every funeral uh, I'm a part of, and and I was part of one recently, um, I'm gonna be part of one in a few weeks, there's this tension, especially if the person's a follower of Jesus, of sadness and uh, I want that in my funeral. I hope you do, that means love, right? If you come to my funeral one day and you're not sad, like that's gonna bum me out. You, know, like, that's, like, you want that a little bit. So it's, it's actually a good thing and I try as a pastor to tell people that, like the tears are good. It's a testimony to a life well lived. And I also find, and especially depending on the type of death, that there's anger. And the scriptures would also tell us that's good. That's okay, sometimes us Christians struggle with getting angry, we feel like that's not Christ-like. Like, we should be angry at death. Death is an alien invader to God's good creation. It's tied to sin. We should be angry about it. There should be some angst in our souls about it. One of my favorite passages in the Gospels is John 11. And Jesus is, is, you know, some days away with the disciples. This is near when he will be crucified on the timeline. And Mary and Martha, which could have been family uh, to, to Jesus, he hung with them a lot in Bethany, which is near Jerusalem. And then I think his best friend, Lazarus, I think they were best friends. Lazarus gets sick, they send for Jesus, he tarries, he stays. And we're like, what is going on? And then he, he comes, he's got a greater play that he's about. And so he's coming in and Lazarus is now dead. He's entombed, he's wrapped up, his body's decaying and he's confronted as he enters Bethany by Mary and Martha. Uh, Mary's more just sad, Martha's angry. And that's good. It's okay to be angry. It's a 
appropriate. Here's the cool thing. Jesus, as God incarnate, was also angry. As he stood in front of the tomb of his best friend, Lazarus, I, I kind of look at it as like the Western showdown, the old school, you know, Jesus at the tomb. John tells us, and what is repeated in the scripture is meant to be paid attention to, twice he uses this unique phrase that Jesus was deeply moved in the Greek. That is the same phrase that was used for the snorting of an angry war horse. Like, I don't know if that's how a war horse sounds, but something like that. Just freaks people out a little bit. That's, John's telling us Jesus was angry. Jesus is like, I am the creator as well. That's my friend and death shouldn't be here. And I'm here to do something about it. We're also told in that same scene, he weeps. So we see these faithful expressions when we confront death because death is an enemy. But we also see the aspect in Genesis 3 begin to creep into the story almost instantaneously that death can be a friend. Because as this plays out, as best I can understand it, the tree of life is there. You eat from it, you live forever in the state you're in. Adam and Eve are broken by sin. So if they eat of the tree of life, they forever stay in that state, which is not a good state. So God sends them out of the garden as a protection and institutes death as the ramification of the sin because God doesn't want us to stay in this broken state. So we start to say, huh, could death also be our friend? And I would argue the heart of the gospel is that Jesus, through the work on the cross, broke the power of sin and death, great reverses the work of death into becoming a portal and a doorway for life. And we see that in the same story of John 11. Um, he's having this conversation with Martha. You know, she's not passive aggressive. She's just aggressive. She's angry. She's upset. She's in Jesus's face, rightly so. And Jesus looks at her, and I, I think he had tears in his eyes already before John tells us he wept. It's his best friend. He, he, he loved Martha. He says, Martha, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, even though they die, they shall live. Do you believe this, Martha? So Jesus is laying the groundwork that death is not only the enemy, but, but death can become our, our friend through the work of Jesus. Uh, we see this, the writers of scripture, uh, Paul to the Corinthian church, death has been swallowed up in victory. And then he goes on later, death, he's like taunting death. Death, where's your victory? Death, where's your sting? Death has become, because of the work of Jesus on the cross, the, the bee without the stinger anymore. He's like calling it out. And then later, Paul says, he, he, he says that he is, I love this word, it's a deep guttural word. He's groaning along with all of creation. Picture like the trees leaning in and the oceans. They're groaning to be set free from death, awaiting the life that will surely come because of the work of Jesus in the resurrection. And then he succinctly says later, Paul says, as a faithful follower of Jesus, which he was, he says, look, death is gain. That's a weird statement, isn't it? Do you hear that talked about much? No, you see biohacking. People are trying to like, they don't, Paul says, no, no, no. In Jesus, death, you don't want to, it's gain. You don't, you don't understand how the story plays out. And there's the tension point that we're sitting in this morning. We're trying to talk about how death is both an enemy and death is a friend. We experience that tension point in the season of Lent. That's why we're talking about this today. Um, Ash Wednesday is the day that begins the season of Lent. And so here at, at New Hope, we hosted an Ash Wednesday experience. Uh, we had people from all four of our campuses come. My family came. It's one of my favorite 
uh, kind of holidays or feast in the church calendar. It was also Valentine's Day, which was weird this year. You know, death and romance, same day. Now, both are our church feast on the church calendar. So anyway, we came, and uh, part of what you do uh, on Ash Wednesday is you uh, can, if you, let me see if I can get that out of my little baggie, you can experience the gift of ashes. And so I've got a couple of people that are going to help me out if you want to come forward this morning uh, to participate. Uh, so we had a room set up and uh, you could, what you would traditionally do in the church world, and this goes way, way back, is that you would have ash applied to your forehead by a pastor or a priest. And so these, these, this ash traditionally uh, was palm ash, which is super cool. I love this nerdy stuff, but it's also really beautiful. And so uh, Palm Sunday, which is the Sunday before the Feast of the Resurrection, Easter, uh, you, we do palm branches, right? Jesus coming in, uh, you know, royalty, laying them down. So churches still do that, and some churches use actual palm branches. So historically, the church would take the palm branches from the previous celebration of the year, not throw them away, but burn them, and collect the ash. The church calendar is a circle, right? We're always living into it, always living into the story. And then bring that ash the next year, to launch the preparation for the Feast of the Resurrection again. I love that. I think it's really cool. So a part of Ash Wednesday, uh, throughout all expressions of of Christianity, are you apply the ash to your forehead. So this is what it would look like. You would come in, and uh, you could do this at our own experience. Hey, good morning. And so you would would have a pastor or or a priest uh, come up to you and say, remember that you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Remember that you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Remember that you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So that obviously comes from Genesis 3. It's pulling from that faithfully, that we came from dust, to dust we shall return. The writers of Scripture want us to know that. But you also notice, if you can see, that it's in the shape of what? A cross, because the cross is where those two things come together, the sadness and the anger of death, but also the hope that Jesus has transformed death into a doorway of life. So we're feeling both of those things, and it's not meant to just be a morose, morbid thing, but an expression of authentic hope as followers of Jesus. And as a pastor, when I have the privilege of applying the dust the heads of folks, especially somebody young like James, right? It's staggering at times. I applied it, I had the gift of applying it to my daughter's foreheads. It's a powerful experience because like everything in me doesn't want them to die, obviously. But they also follow Jesus. And I want them to reckon with death as a gift. And we're gonna talk about that uh, in the remaining part of the service. Can we give it up for our volunteers? I'm not, uh, I'm not sure if that comes off, by the way. I don't know. <laughs> Just kidding. It's good. All right. So um, let's talk about that. I, I, I would put forward today, if you remember, if you remember anything, um, it's the idea that uh, remembering death allows us to embrace life. That's what I want you kind of going home with. Disagree, argue, whatever. <laughs> it's fine. But I think that's what the writer of Scripture tells us. Remembering death allows us to better embrace life. Uh, there's a, a church uh, saying that's been used throughout church history, memento mori, uh, remember death. It's a Latin phrase. Remember death. Remember, all the way back we see the followers of Jesus. Remember death, remember death. You see it in a lot of great Christian art. Uh, St. Benedict wrote in his Rule of Life, 
keep death daily before their eyes. Uh, we see a skull icon. An icon is a, like a picture that leads us into greater truth. So a lot of the earliest followers of Jesus through the centuries have used a skull and embraced a skull as meaningful. I mean, you might think I'm making this stuff up. Here's St. Francis, the great St. Francis, pictured with a skull. Uh, this is another famous painting of St. Jerome uh, in his study right there. He's studying the scriptures right there with a skull. He needs to put a shirt on, but you know. You know <laughs> And then we have uh, Vanitas here. This is from the 1600s. Sorry, the resolution on the aren't great. But you see, like these are paintings made by followers of Jesus. Skull. So if you ever wanted to get a tattoo that was a skull, now you have pastoral approval. It's, it's right there. It's wherever you want to do it. So this idea that they're not trying to be morbid, right? See, we keep death at arm's length. We think it's all an enemy. And the, our, our brothers and sisters that proceed us say, no. Because of Jesus, no. Yes, it is an enemy that he has crushed and conquered, but death has become in Jesus a portal for life. Remembering death allows us to embrace life. How? I think for one, remembering death right sizes us. Like our parents, Adam and Eve, sin has the propensity to tell us and whisper in our ears, you are God. You can be your own God. That's the heart of sin that breaks everything that's good and beautiful and true. Death, facing down death, reminds us that we're not God. It right-sizes us. I mean, those of you who, who are my age and even older, you know this better than those of you who are younger. So those of you younger, don't be arrogant. Listen to us. Life goes by like this, right? Older people, can I get an amen? Like this, like this. I, uh, as I was raising, uh, as we were raising our girls, and we still are 13 and 16, um, I had a habit, especially when they were younger, of going up to parents that I respected and saying, give me your advice, because I don't know what I'm doing, clearly. Uh, tell me what you did that was good. Tell me what you did that you regretted. I don't know if I had one of those conversations without them somewhere in the conversation get tears in their eyes and say, it goes so fast. Be present. Be present. The days are long, but the years are short, as the adage goes. The writers of scripture, again, what is repeated is meant to be paid attention to. From beginning to end, they want us to know this. They pound us with metaphors, trying to shout to us that life is short. Here's an, up on the screen, you'll see all kind of examples. This is just some of them. A shadow, a vanishing cloud, a sprinter, a flower, an eagle swooping down, on and on and on. I mean, some of what you can do devotionally is to think through which of those metaphors really grabs you and, and sit with it and meditate on it. Uh, part of my job as a, as a pastor, and pastor in 2024, right, is to think through what are some good modern metaphors for this. So, you know, eagle swooping down and mist. I don't know, there are, right? But can we, can we improve all them for our present context? So I was thinking, I think if the writers of scripture are writing right now, they may say that, that life is a bubble, right? Uh, Moses, when he was writing in Psalm 90. Psalm 90 uh, is one of my favorite psalms. I think Moses wrote it at the end of his life. Uh, the Bonhoeffer family, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, they would read Psalm 90 every New Year's Eve. So our family's been doing that the last couple of years. It's powerful. Here's a little bit of it. It says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. 
thousand years in your sight or like a day that has just gone by or like a watch in the night. You sweep people away in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass in the morning. In the morning, it springs up new, but by evening, it's dry and withered. Moses is estimated because there was millions of Israelites in the desert, in the wilderness for those 40 years, that 80 to 90 of them died a day. That's three to four an hour. This man knew death. And he says, they're like grass in the desert. I mean, they're in the desert when he's writing, right? So a lot of times they get a little rain, grass pops up, and then it's just gone by like two o'clock. He's like, that's your life. They knew that. They lived with it. They were around, they, they couldn't keep it at arm's length. I think for us, again, I think he, he might, if he was writing in 2024, say, your life is, is a bubble. That's you, that, that's me right there. We don't wanna admit it, you're trying to act like you're not the bubble, but you're totally the bubble. What if these bubbles would be like, I am the mighty bubble, I will live forever. You know, I mean, it's ludicrous, it's ridiculous. And this is what we do as humans. This is what we are. Maybe that bums you out, but wrapped in the grace of God, wrapped in the power of Jesus' work on the cross, you don't need to fear that. There's actually a gift in that. The Hebrew word for people that Moses uses in the Psalm 90 means weak or frail one. Maybe we need to start greeting one another that way. Ginger, my frail sister. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Dina, my weak sister. You know, on and on and on. It's just, it right sizes us. It reminds us that we are not God, and maybe you don't think you need to be reminded of that. I would beg to differ. James, the brother of Jesus, says, why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Remembering death helps us embrace life uh, by reminding us we're not God. Also, it helps us embrace life because it helps us to carpe diem, uh, David was reminding me every time I talk about death, I mentioned this movie. So yes, it is, it is coming. But uh, it, Mike, a couple of weeks ago, I think maybe a couple of months ago, mentioned that he thought the 80s had the best movies. Do you guys remember that? And he said music. Are you in here, Mike? All right. He said earlier, also the best clothing. So I told him he, next week he had to wear baggy pants and a Miami Vice jacket to prove <laughs> if that was true. But one of my favorite movies, truly, is Dead Poets Society. Robin Williams, he is a, he's an eccentric teacher at a school, a prep school in uh, the Northeast that doesn't deal with eccentricity very well. So he's the new teacher. The students are prepared for an old stodgy English teacher, and he is anything but that. So if you remember the scene, if you haven't seen the movie, I think it's well worth your time, but he takes them out in the hallway and uh, there's all these class photos and this school is so old that many of the students in the classroom have already died. <laughs> and these are like 16 year old boys, 15 year old boys, and he has them all lean in and they're just staring at them. And he says, they're, they're food for worms, lads, right now. And then he says, you know, he does that carpe diem. And they're like looking at each other like teenagers do, kind of like, who is this weirdo? Seize the day, boys. Make your lives extraordinary. By understanding that we're bubbles, by understanding that life is short, that death is coming for all of us, allows us to understand the importance of this moment. The writers of scripture would agree. Moses says, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. James says, be careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity. 
writer, uh, Annie Dillard, uh, she's an award-winning writer, follower of Jesus. Maybe my, my favorite quote, how you spend your days, uh, of course, is how you spend your lives. We fall for this, like I'm gonna do it tomorrow or I'll have tomorrow. All the writers are saying, don't think like that. Today is your life. Right now is your life. This minute is your life and it is precious. We have a birth date and we will have a death date. What are you gonna do with your dash? That's what the writer of scripture wants us to think about. In a standard life, we'll spend six months at stoplights, eight months opening and reading junk mail, one year looking for misplaced items, two years unsuccessfully returning phone calls, four years doing housework, five years waiting in line, and six years eating, some of us seven years eating. That would be myself. There's some millennials that uh, they, were, they were looking at how their, their peers, how their generation spent their time. I think these stats are actually really low. I've read much higher ones, but they, their stats that they, they discovered was that their peers check their phone 76 times a day, about 2.5 hours a day on their phone. I think now it's, it's even more. But let's go with the 2.5. That would mean in a normal lifespan, you know, 77 years, that we will spend 70,000 hours on our phone. And they're like, that's unacceptable. And so they created, you could download this. Maybe I'll challenge you to download it. Uh, they, they created an app called uh, We Croak. We Croak. And so you sign up for this app and it, throughout the day, it'll just pop up with reminders reminding you you're about to die. You know, someone's, <laughs> again, you may think it's morbid, but I don't even know that they're followers of Jesus. They see the truth in it. Yes, death is an enemy. Let's not forget that. Sadness and anger are appropriate, but because of Jesus, death is also your friend. Because of Jesus, death has become a portal for life, and right now, even though we're not to that portal of life yet, death is a friend, and it reminds us you're not God, reminds me I'm not God, and it allows you to go and take life and, t- and, and go for it. Like, use every moment for the glory of God and not waste it. Uh, there's a great book called Screwtape Letters that uh, C.S. Lewis uh, read. If you've never read any Lewis, please do. Um, Screwtape Letters is really small. And uh, it's, it's a fictional book about uh, uh, an, a, a senior level demon uh, coaching his younger nephew, Screwtape, on how to mess with followers of Jesus. How do you mess with them? How do you take them down? And one of the key things that he tells his young nephew is keep convincing them that they've got a lot of time left. That's it. Just keep them distracted with stuff. Allow them just to waste their lives away. See, the the idea that we want to hack life and that death is only bad, that's a demonic thought, is what Lewis is telling us. It's not a Jesus-centered thought. And that's what we have to wrestle with in Lent. This has been a, a season of of death um, for, for our family. Um, my, my wife's stepmother, some of you know this, passed away on Christmas Day. And so that was shocking to all of us and really hard. We'll be going back to Madison. She asked that I would do uh, the service in uh, not this weekend, but the next. So I'd really appreciate your prayers on that. That'll be a tough one. Um, We've had, uh, uh, I shared on Easter, this past Easter, our really good friend, Steve, who was essentially family to us and kind of grandparent to our girls, uh, passed away of uh, pancreatic cancer. That was still, is very hard. That death is really difficult. 
had numerous uh, friends get sick, facing death. Uh, we did uh, the memorial for Diane over me. There's Dave right there. So Dave, I'm so glad you're here today and we love you and we grieve with you and we hope with you. And uh, I see, I see the, the pain on your face and the sadness. And so go give Dave a hug. Let him know that he's not alone, that we're his family. And I appreciate you being here, Dave. But it was a gift. to I love Diane. She was just so much like Jesus. And so are you, Dave. And I don't know if you remember this. I hope it's okay sharing, Dave. But, but when, I, when I showed up for the, the burial, um, Dave asked me to kind of lead that out. Um, part of it was Dave allowed people to see Diane's body. Right? And she looked beautiful right? and peaceful and at rest. So, Dave, I don't know, you had a lot going all that day, but I came into that room and she was lying there and, and you uh, showed me the rings on her finger, right? And you showed me her watch and you were telling me history, which is really important. And then, <laughs> Dave, I, think, I thought this was really funny and beautiful. You kind of looked at me, you had family in the room and you said, but John, she's not in there. <laughs> and I was like, hey, I went to seminary, you know? Like I, 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 could, I could track with it, Dave, you know, I'm with a... But I think I saw, in, as I looked in your face, and Dave's a good friend, um, I saw sadness and maybe even a little anger, and, and that's okay, that's beautiful, because death is an enemy. But you also know Jesus has conquered death, and you know where Diane is. And I also saw the sparkle of hope in your eyes, yeah. right? And that's beautiful. So thank you, my friend, for, for testifying. Yeah. If you're, uh, if you're here today, we're at all points of the spiritual journey, and I'm really glad wherever you're at on the spiritual journey that you're here, but I would be remiss uh, not to confront you in a loving way with Jesus' words to Martha, because his question is for you too, right? We all have to face down death, and we have to face down where is our hope. If you want to put your hope in uh, Google um, or some Russian millionaire or Elon Musk, God help us, uh, good luck. Go for that. I think that that's a, a poor decision. Or we have the opportunity and the invitation to put our hope in the one who proclaimed to be the resurrection and the life. And so that question that he asked Martha cascades down throughout history and confronts each of us and we must wrestle with it and answer. So I'm gonna confront you with it today and, and invite you to, to answer. Jesus said clearly, uh, without apology, I am the resurrection and the life. And if he wasn't, and he didn't rise, we wouldn't be talking about him. And if he said that and he wasn't really God incarnate, that he was a lunatic or a liar, or he was who he says he was. There's not many other choices. And so Jesus says, like, I, I, you're gonna die, but I am the resurrection of life. If you believe in me, even though you die, you will live. Do you believe this? And I wanna invite you. And so some of you, are, you're wrestling with it, and that's okay. Like, wrestle with it, talk with us. We're all on journeys here. But inevitably, I don't know there's a more important question that we ever have to answer in our hearts. And for those of us who have said yes, we've pinned our hope to Jesus, we've transferred our trust to Jesus' work on the cross and not our ability to defeat death or to somehow wrangle our way out of it or to make ourselves appeasing to God and all of our brokenness, which are all futile attempts. We don't have to do anything. You don't have to clean yourself up. You don't have to behave extra or come to church every Sunday. I mean, I hope you do, but you know, that doesn't matter in the whole scheme of that. Jesus has done the work and it's a gift. He has broken and he alone could break as God the power of sin and death and he's freely invited us to pin our hopes on him to enter life today. And then if we do, we begin to follow him as our rabbi and we begin to get shaped in the way of Jesus and death becomes more of a friend than ever. And we live lives of robust 
life. That's the invitation. So I present it to you as you wrestle, as you consider coming to the table. Who is Jesus? And if you've never placed your hope in him as the resurrection of life, I invite you to do so uh, this morning. C.S. Lewis ends his Chronicles of Narnia. It's the last book is called The Last Battle. And if you know the books, the children go to and from, right? You know, through the wardrobe in the, into Narnia and then back and no time passes and all that cool stuff. In the last book, there's a train accident and they show up and there's Aslan, they're in Narnia. Aslan's the personification of Jesus in the story. And he says, uh, I got something to share with you. <laughs> He's like, this time you're not going back. The train accident was, was real. And this is what, how Lewis writes it. He says, I love this phrase. He says, when they realized that these kids, a wild hope rose up in them. Isn't that great? A wild hope rose up in them. And then Lewis writes, your father and your mother and all of you are, as you used to call it in the shadow lands, which is Lewis's term for our life right now, you're dead. <laughs> the term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream has ended. This is the morning. And Lewis continues, the things that begin to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And as for us, this is the end of all our stories, meaning the books he wrote. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, listen, but for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Let's pray. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, thank you for your presence with us. Thank you for the season of Lent. I'm really grateful. Every year we enter the story again, we relive it, we reenact it, it becomes our story. And we're confronted that because of sin in the world, uh, we will die. We will die. And yet because of the magnificent, incredible work of Jesus on the cross, death, if we pin our hopes to Jesus, becomes a doorway to life. All the wreckage of death has been reversed and reverse engineered and it becomes vehicles of making all things right. What a story, what a God you are. Thank you that, that I don't have to do anything. I don't have to behave a certain way. I don't have to clean myself up because who possibly could? We don't have to do that. This is all a gift. It's a gift, it was the only way. And you bore all of our junk, you bore all of our sin, you bore all of the weight and the penalty and the angst of sin upon yourself freely and lovingly and broke it forever and invites us into life that will never end. I pray for anybody in the room tonight that has never looked to you for life. Maybe they look to you as a kind teacher or a nice guy, but never as God incarnate who forever ended death. And I pray there's hearts right now that are leaning in that your spirit would do that work and they would say yes to Jesus. For those of us who have said yes, that you're our rabbi, we follow you. Help us not live as the people of the world looking at death as only an enemy, but help us to see that death can be our friend. Indeed, you have made it our friend and we can embrace it to live life to its fullest. Thank you for your great love that never, ever lets us go. We pray this all in the matchless name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen.